Okay, Larry, you want to take it away? Absolutely. So it's my pleasure to welcome the members of Torah and PMS to a panel discussion with our Rebbeim, Rabbi Frank and Rabbi Weinberg. It's wonderful that our two shuls are together tonight to learn together and celebrate the Chag together. I want to thank Elisheva Cohen, a member of Orhatora and KMS's administrator for coming up with the idea to have this joint program. I hope Elisheva's on, uh, but anyway, if she's not, please send her our thanks. And thank you also Rabbi Frank and Rabbi Weinberg for making the time to put on this panel discussion during this busy time of year. So if everybody's ready, we can begin. Thank you so much, Larry. Uh, much appreciated. Um, Larry, go for it. Okay, so Rabbi Weinberg and Rabbi Frank, please describe a few interesting COVID-19 related halakha questions that you've received. Rabbi Weinberg, you can start us off. Okay, well, thank you um, again, Larry. It's uh, such a pleasure to be here tonight with all of you. Thank you, Rabbi Frank, for uh, agreeing, I guess, to participate and uh, for coming together in this way. Thank you, Elisheva, for the wonderful idea uh, for creating this event um, and uh, really appreciate the effort that you put into organizing it. And thank you to all of you uh, for being here tonight and for, for listening. It's actually really been a wonderful uh, privilege to get to know Rabbi Frank over the last few years, working together on the VOD and on other projects. And it's great to be able to have a joint program between our shuls, especially to increase the feeling of achdus, the feeling of unity at this time. In many ways during COVID, uh, we're all retreating into our own little bubbles a little bit. And uh, it feels so nice and it feels so right, especially on Sukkot. Uh, which is so much about achdos, like the Gemara says in Soka, Kol Yisrael, Ruin Leishe B'Soka Achas, the time when we come together, as if the entire Jewish people could dwell under one Soka. So it feels particularly right and appropriate uh, to be able to share this space here tonight with the hope that maybe we could do it together in person uh, someday. So uh, talking about Shilas that we've received, I'm excited to hear Rabbi Frank's uh, Shilas as well. Um, I'll share one and uh, he'll share one. We'll go back and forth uh, for a couple of minutes sharing a few of the, the, the many shilas that we've received. Um, it's hard to pick because there are so many interesting ones that have come up, especially during this time of COVID and especially surrounding all of the Yamin Tovim that have come up during this time period, uh, starting already from Pesach and leading us uh, right now uh, through Sukkot. So um, I think one, what we've seen over the course of time is that the two of the greatest mitigation strategies to prevent the spread of COVID has really been hand hygiene and face coverings. And um, it's so interesting that many of the Shilas that I've gotten have surrounded these two issues, and I could mention many of them, but I'll share just one with you uh, right now. Um, and that is a Shila about masks. Uh, the traditional shiloh about masks that I've been receiving uh, many times over is uh, not really relevant to our community. Um, I've been getting it from kids who are on college campuses and other places, and that is the shiloh whether one can wear a mask out on Shabbos in a place where there's no Eru. But I'm not going to address that tonight since I think uh, that that's less relevant for us as a community. But one very interesting question which I received uh, about masks is that some of the better masks, as all of you know, have a little metal strip uh, that it goes around your nose that forms a tighter seal uh, around your nose. And you can bend it in place, which both helps you to prevent fogging up your glasses a little bit and uh, also prevents perhaps the spread of COVID since it's tighter uh, around your face. The question was, can you bend that piece of metal around your nose 
uh, on Shabbos or Yantif or not? Uh, is there a problem of Makib Apatish, of Tikkun Mane, of correcting a, a, a vessel, of creating a vessel, of creating or perfecting uh, a vessel when you bend that mask strip to make sure that it stays in place on your nose? Um, so it's a fascinating uh, Shaila. It's interesting because uh, the Gemara and Beitza actually mentions a very similar case about a shpud, shenirtzaf, a uh, type of metal strip that got bent out of place, out of shape. Rashi explains over there, maybe someone stepped on it, maybe it got twisted or something like that, and you now want to straighten it out. So the Gemara there says, also with Takna Biyomtov, you're not allowed to straighten out that piece of metal. It's an Isser of Tikkun Mane. And so it's very interesting because that would seem to be exactly our case. And Shulchan Aruch Paskin's like, uh, that Gemara, um, although the Bir Halacha there says that maybe it's not an Isidah Raisa, it's not totally the Malacha of Tikkun Mane, um, because perhaps uh, in this case, you know, it's um, it's not the, the fully for, full formation of a Kli, but it would still certainly be an Isidah Banan to bend the metal strip in that way. Um, so in general, the Shulchan Aruch says when things are made to be taken apart and put back together and it happens in a, pl- in, in a way that's rough way, that's not really tightly sealed, you know, not fascinating, a, fastening a screw tightly in place, but you're loosely putting things together, like opening a folding chair, closing a folding chair. That's not called tikkun mana, according to Shulchan Aruch. Um, and so the question would be, in the case of this metal strip, which is meant to be bent and to be shaped in a certain way, that's part of the usage of the mask, whether that's called tikkun mana, whether that's called perfecting the vessel in some way or not, whether this bending of the metal falls under the same category as what the Shulchan Aruch describes in that Gemara and Beitza about straightening out a piece of metal that got bent, or whether it's more similar to the case of opening a folding chair and closing a folding chair, which is meant to be used in that way. So uh, it was pointed out to me that um, there's a fascinating comment of the Buchacha Rav, Ishel Avram, Shulchan Aruch, uh, Ishal Avram died in about 1840, I believe, lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Very important commentary in Shulchan Aruch. So he cites an amazing discussion um, that becomes exactly pertinent to our case of the mask. And I found it fascinating just how pertinent it was. Um, so he talks about glasses. And I think we've all experienced this situation uh, many times. In his comment to that Sif in Shulchan Aruch about straightening out the metal, uh, actually, no, it's a, in Shulchan Aruch and Shin Gimel about, um, about putting together different vessels in a light way. So he makes this comment. He says, what happens if someone's uh, lens falls out of their glasses on Shabbos? So in those times, uh, the metal around the lens of your glass could be really shaped in a way that would hold the lens back in place. So for us, it's harder to do. You need a machine. But in those times, perhaps you could bend the metal to you know, make the lens tight uh, within, within your glasses. It was kind of like a wire. So he points out that based on the Shulchan Aruch, that would be usr. That's not something loose. That's something very tight. That is the epitome of tikkun mana. That is fixing the clay. It's making something that's not usable into something usable in a way that it's not meant to be used. Your lens is not supposed to come out. So bending that metal would be extremely uh, problematic, he says. It would, be, it would be usr, and that would be really forming a new clay. But he says, what if the side pieces of metal on your glasses become a little bent? Or you need to bend them in order to get them on your face or to have it fit behind your ears. You know, many of our glasses are not bendable in that way. But if you had metal strips that came over here, he speaks about that case. And he says over there, it'd be completely mutter. Absolutely mutter to bend those 
in that case, it's made to do that. The glasses, every time you take them on and off, it bends a little bit. It's just part of the way the glasses are used and it's never really formed in a tight way and it's not the full formation of a clay of a vessel. And therefore it, it's totally Motri says to do that. Now I found that fascinating because I think it's a perfectly applicable uh, case that we can extrapolate from to our case uh, of the mask. It seems to be very, very similar. In our case of the mask, it's meant to be shaped and unshaped. In fact, even as it's so temporary, even as it's on your nose, um, once you shape it, if you're talking or if you're breathing or if you're moving, it slowly becomes unshaped. You keep having to bend it. Certainly when you take it off, it becomes unshaped. That's the, the way a mask is meant to be used. It's a very light thing. It's not a tight, you know, fitting, um, fixing of the clay. It's meant to be used that way. And it fits exactly into this case of the Eshalavram. So I thought it would be permissible to bend that metal uh, around uh, your nose. Uh, what I really found interesting about this, and with that I'll close, is that um, our halacha is such a Torah chaim, such a living, breathing entity. We have so much history and so much precedent um, that addresses every single case possible. And uh, I find that very comforting, especially in these times. The um, Ishal Avram, you know, thought about some case about glasses and a lens falling out and tightening it around your ears. And now all of a sudden that case is so relevant to us here today in terms of a mask and a reality that we never could have possibly predicted. That feeling to me of connectedness to the past and to the cases of the past uh, felt so comforting in this time when I think a lot of us feel unmoored and um, a lot of us feel uh, like we're floating a little bit. So that was very comforting to me. Rabbi Frank, I'll hang it over, hand it over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rabbi Weinberg. I'm actually happy to hear that that's permitted um, being that I was doing it. So <laughs> I, that's an excellent, an excellent presentation and a beautiful analogy. And uh, I feel a lot more comfortable now. <laughs> Very often we do things and we don't think about them. And I'm happy you raised that point and, and clarified it. That was, that's perfect. Um, I wanted to share uh, actually from the more uh, out there questions that I was asked during the co course of COVID. Um, this happened on air. I was asked this, um, uh, the Thursday before Rosh Hashanah, right? So Rosh Hashanah, the first day was Shabbos. Uh, and I was asked this the Thursday prior. It was from one of, one of the people who dive into my shul, one of the congregants who live out uh, a little further out. And the area around them is mostly non-religious. So they were approached by some of their neighbors who asked them, would this, they asked, asked, asked the wife, does your husband know how to blow the shofar? And she said, yeah, he actually does know how to blow the shofar. So she said, would he be willing to blow it for me and some of my friends, we want to hear the shofar, would he be able to blow it for us on Saturday, on Rosh Hashanah? Uh, so she said, oh, Saturday, no, that's not going to work. Uh, you know, Orthodox Jews, we don't blow the shofar on Saturday. But uh, let me give you a long, uh, we have a list, there's going to be numerous locations where shofar blowing will take place on Sunday. And she forwarded her the list of the Camp Mill show for blowings. Now, somehow, I don't know how this happened, but there was some confusion. And the woman left thinking that she had just agreed to have her husband blow shofar for her and her friends. And she calls her back on Thursday and she says, it's great, we're all excited. I got a group of 10 of my friends together and we're gonna come and your husband will blow shofar for us on Friday, Arab Rosh Hashanah. So apparently, which we found out later, there was a movement by the reform 
rabbinate to have shofar blowing or dry bed shofar blowing on Friday. Somehow they got confused with that and they wanted to have the shofar blown for them on Friday. So now I was called and asked, well, Friday is Arab Rosh Hashanah and you're not supposed to blow the shofar on Arab Rosh Hashanah. It's the one day of the year that you're actually not supposed to blow the shofar. And here you have all these people that want to be inspired. They want to hear the shofar. Is it okay to blow shofar for the sake of those people? So I, I, I didn't think I had a, any precedent for this one, but uh, I had just heard a story from Rabbi Volvovsky, as it happens, uh, and he had shared a story about the Minchas Lazar, the last Munkach Rebbe before World War II, the, the great dynasty of Munkach. Uh, and he, the story goes that he was the one who blew the shofar for his, uh, his kahila, for his shul, and it was Arab Rosh Hashanah, and, Understandably, he didn't blow the shofar, and his little grandchild, little boy, comes over to him and he says, Zayda, uh, you know, grandfather, why aren't you blowing the shofar? And he said, well, we don't blow the shofar in Arab Rosh Hashanah. So he turns to his grandfather, and he's being, being a little child. He says, I want to hear the shofar. And, and his father, grandfather says, well, we don't do that. And he starts crying, and he really wants to hear the shofar. So the Minchas Elazar went up to the bima and middle of the base matters, and he banged on the beam, and he told everybody, We're go- I'm going to blow the shofar because my grandson is crying, and he desperately wants to hear the shofar. He can't be calmed down, and I can't bear to see a child cry. And he went up there, and he blew the shofar. He blew it to Tekiah, Shvarim, Trua, Tekiah. And then he addressed his whole congregation, and he said, you know, we are, are talking to Hashem every day, and we don't need to hear Tekiah, Shvaram, Trua, Tekiah. We just want to hear one shofar blast. Tekab, shofar, Gadol. That's all we want. And God, how can you see your children cry and not blow the shofar? That's all we want. We just want to hear the one, one shofar blast. So I was thinking that uh, if we can deduce any halacha from this story, uh, it would seem that in case of need, and his need, a need is to inspire people, which is undoubtedly the, the real intent of the Minchas Allah, the Munkach Rebbe, he wanted to inspire his congregation with this thought. Uh, he did blow, so perhaps that would be a good uh, analogy to allow them to blow Arab Rosh Hashanah for those people. But instead, I suggested, as a good rabbi would, to tell them, you know what, Friday is a very busy day. Uh, we are available on Sunday, and we'd be very happy to blow the shofar for you on Sunday when there's plenty of time. And sure enough, that worked. And Baruch Hashem, they all came, and they were all heard shofar when you're actually supposed to hear shofar, and they were yet to the mitzvah shofar as well. So I, I just, uh, I, I was actually inspired because I know in many other of the locations that we held shofar blowing in here and Woodside, many non-religious people attended, and it was really beautiful as you know, as, as difficult as COVID made it for people, and we came together as a community, and it was truly a community effort. We had 40 shofar blowings in different locations in order to enable everybody to blow shofar, and then we had this side benefit, uh, you know, the, the, the ramifications of which who can know that so many other people who wouldn't have heard shofar otherwise, or who would have heard it on YouTube, or, you know, however else they would have heard shofar, they actually got to hear an authentic shofar blowing, and, and, they have that schus, and it's all of our schus, of all our communal schus. So when the difficulty and the nisayan and the tests, they bring us together, that brings the best out of us and tends to make so many good things blossom as a result. So that was very inspirational for me. Rabbi Weinberg, Rabbi Weinberg you have another story to share, Sharla? Sure. sure. Uh, well, Rabbi Frank, that was amazing. I love that question, and uh, I love that story. I saw that story as well, and... Uh, I found it to be very moving. And I, I think 
what it highlights are, Frank, I'm sure you see this as well, just there's just such a thirst out there um, in general, but especially during these times to connect the Torah and to connect to our heritage and to connect to other people in, in a very deep way as your story uh, highlights, very inspiring. Um, I'll share uh, another Shaila, um, a very different one, a thirst for a different, uh, of a different kind over here. Um, many people have asked me how to build a COVID-friendly sukkah this year. And it's great because it brought to life so many halachos of uh, Hilchos sukkah that I think have gone uh, forgotten by many people over the course of time because we have such standard sukkahs and now people are building such out-of-the-box sukkahs that uh, really makes us think about the intricacies of those halachs. It's very interesting. Um, but as we near the end of sukkahs now, another question has come up uh, to me, um, which I think is also interesting to think about. And this is not a lachlamai, so you can ask your own questions uh, to your own rabbis, certainly to Rabbi Frank um, or to me if you'd like. Um, but the question came up about, of course, there's an interesting question about eating uh, in the sukkah on Shmini Atzeres. Uh, that's already an old question. And of course, in Chutzlar, it's, uh, we have different practices having to do with that, but that's the Gemara already addresses that. Mesa v'yasvinan, ruch elomavrachinan, we sit in the sukkah, but we don't make a leishiv a sukkah. That's a common question. But this year, I got a different kind of question, which is, can we sit in the sukkah on Simchas Torah? Not on Shmini Atzeres, but on Simchas Torah, here in Chutzlar. The reason for that is because people built these COVID-friendly sukkahs, which are very airy and very open, and they want to have meals with other people on Simchas Torah, and they can't do that in their home, and so they were thinking of using the space of their sukkah to be able to do that. However, they were concerned that if they would sit on the sukkah on added day, not only Shmini Atzeres, which is Suffolk, Shmini Suffolk, uh, which is Shmini Safik Shvi, which is the eighth day, but maybe the seventh day, according to Sveka de Yoma here in Chutzlaretz. But if they would sit on Simchas Torah already, which is the ninth day, that would be like a question of Baltosif, of adding to a mitzvah, uh, which could be problematic. And therefore, it was asked whether that would be permissible uh, to do. Now, I'm not giving any medical advice uh, here about whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to eat together, even in an open sukkah, or how open it has to be, or eating with other people en masse, how far you have to be, that you have to ask your doctors. But just to answer this very interesting halachic question, of course, I guess, uh, as you've already uh, deduced from what I said, the issue is baltosif, of adding to a mitzvah in a way that's not prescribed by the Torah. So the question that we've shown him already arises as to whether it's called baltosif if you do something that looks like you're adding, but that's not your intention at all. Your intention is not to change or manipulate the mitzvah, but do something entirely different. And there's different positions in the Rishon. But even if you take the position that if you have kavana, you have intent for something else entirely, not to add to the mitzvah, that it would be permissible to add. Nevertheless, the Rishonim point out that there's still another category, not an Isr de Oraisa, Torah prohibition of Baltosim, but a Dirabanan, a lesser rabbinic uh, prohibition of adding, which is not really adding, but Nire Kemosif Allah Mitzvos. But it looks like you're adding to the mitzvah, and that could itself be problematic, even though you have the intent for something else. So is this nirek emosif ala mitzvah? Clearly here, you don't have the intent to add another day to sukkah. So it's not an isr de oraisa of baltosif. The question would be, is it an isr de rabana? Is it rabbinically prohibited to sit in the sukkah for an extra day uh, on Simchas Torah in a way that was not prescribed? So very interestingly, uh, the Mishnah in sukkah already describes the transition from Shvi to Shmini, from the last day of Sukkot 
all the way into uh, Shemini Atzeres. And the Mishnah tells us you're supposed to be Mori de Sakelim. The, the beautiful dishes that the Gemara earlier in Sukkah tells us you should bring into the Sukkah because Osesukaso Keva Vadirasa Ara, you're supposed to make Heshu Kain Tadur, you're supposed to live in your Sukkah the way you live in your home. So you bring your most beautiful Kalim, your most beautiful dishes out. So those dishes that made Sukkah so special in your Sukkah, already as you transition out of Sukkah, you should take out of your Sukkah in order to show a certain level of respect for Shmini Atzeris, that you're taking those dishes back into the home. The Gemara is talking about in Israel where Shmini Atzeres is Shmini Atzeres, and the seventh day of Sukkot is the end of Sukkot. So over there, you want to mark the end of Sukkot, go into Shmini Atzeres by taking those kalim inside. But the Gemara asks a question which becomes very pertinent to us in this reality. The Gemara says, what happens if you don't have a place to take them to? You can't remove your kalim, your vessels from the Sukkot, because you need to use that space to eat on Shmini Atzeres for whatever the reason. Rashi explains that in the Gemara over there in Daf Memchais. So what happens in that case? The Gemara makes different suggestions about what you could do uh, in order to make a definitive declaration that sitting in the sukkah on that day is not adding to the holiday. It's not adding a day to sukkahs, but simply an issue of practicality. You had nowhere else to go to eat, so you stayed with your kalim in the sukkah a day later, even after sukkahs end. First quest, the first suggestion the Gemara makes is you should passel your sukkah. You should make it an invalid sukkah. You should take off the schach. Once it's clearly not a kosher sukkah, then it's not near a kamosi vala mitzvah. It's not going to look like you're adding to the mitzvah by sitting in there another day. It's not even a kosher sukkah anymore. Now, obviously, the Gemara is saying that because the Gemara is speaking about in Israel on the seventh day on Hoshana Rabbah, tomorrow, where it still would be mutter to take off the schach and invalidate the sukkah going into the eighth day. But for us, our reality is one day later. What we're talking about is transitioning from the eighth day to the ninth day, from Shmini Atzeres Simchas Torah. You can't passel your sukkah on Shmini Atzeres because that would involve malacha of taking down the schach, and therefore that is out of the question. The Gemara makes another suggestion, which is uh, that perhaps if you're transitioning to a day when you're not supposed to be sitting in the sukkah, if you can't invalidate the sukkah, maybe you should bring in your cooking dishes, your cooking vessels, into the sukkah. And that would be a definitive declaration that this is not sukkah at all. The Gemara says in Shulchan Aruch that you're not supposed to have those kind of vessels in the sukkah on sukkahs because it's like a bizayon. It's a little bit of a degradation to the sukkah to bring in all of your, your kalim and your pots and your pens. And therefore, if those are in there on the day after sukkahs, and you're sitting in the sukkah, everyone will realize you're not mostly falamitzas. You're not trying to sit there because it's sukkahs. You're sitting there because you just want to sit there. So that might be a practical suggestion that uh, many have uh, proposed for this year. I saw, interestingly, Rav Shechter, or Herschel Shechter from YU came out with the tshuva just a couple of days ago, uh, or maybe even yesterday, where he suggested that in today's day and age, that actually would not be a valid way of declaring that it's not sukkahs, because the kalim, the vessels, the cooking vessels that Chazal were speaking about, Shulchan Aruch speaking about, are disgusting types of vessels you wouldn't want in your sukkah. Once you have those in there, it's clearly not sukkahs, because you would never bring those in on sukkahs. But today, we bring in our pots. You're serving soup. You're allowed to bring in your pot from the kitchen to the sukkah to serve the soup. So we bring in our cooking vessels. They're not disgusting vessels in that way. And therefore, just like it, it might be permissible to bring those in on Sukkot, bringing those in on Simchas Torah would not be a definitive declaration that it's not Sukkot. And so that really wouldn't work uh, very well. Rosh Shechter actually makes two suggestions 
uh, about how to perhaps invalidate your sukkah on Shmini Atzeres going into Simchas Torah in order to enable you to sit there. Uh, one is you can't really remove the sfach yourself because as I said, that's a malacha, uh, but you could cover over the sfach. It's a little bit of a difficult one. You have to make sure you're not creating an OL, you're not creating a canopy of some sort or a structure of some sort, but in theory, if you could cover the sfach, that would work. Or he suggests, perhaps you could ask a non-Jew to remove the sfach late in the afternoon of Shemini Atzeres going into Simchas Torah. The reason that would be permissible is usually Amir Lanachwe telling a non-Jew to do malacha for you would be a problem on Shabbos or on Yantif, and so you would not be able to do that. Over here, he argues that perhaps it's shvus the shvus b'makom mitzvah. Perhaps, certainly, it's the Amir Lanachri, which makes it telling a non-Jew, which makes it a derabanan. The malacha of taking down the schach is only derabanan because it's so ser, it's taking down a structure, but it's so ser shaloh amenas livnos. You're not trying to take it down to rebuild it, you're just trying to take it down, which makes it a malacha derabanan. And because eating in the sukkah, especially with others, perhaps adds the simcha of the yantiv, which is a mitzvah, maybe it's shvus the shvus mitzvah, which might be permissible under these circumstances. Again, practical question aside, you can ask your own child. I found this a, a fascinating treatment of this halachic issue and this question that came up for me this week. Um, and interestingly, it's the opposite of the previous case, which I cited. In the previous case, I showed how the precedent of the Ishal of Ram leads us directly to the case, perhaps, of the mass. Here, it's very interesting. The precedent in Shulchan Aruch and the Gemara about how to kind of show that it's not sukkahs by bringing in your cooking dishes actually, according to Roshachter, is not a valid precedent in our reality because reality has changed so much. But to me, it actually uh, continues to reinforce an important point, which uh, makes me feel um, perhaps inspired or comfortable in this reality, which is that even when we don't have precedent, even when the precedent breaks down for us, we have posting amazing halachic decisors in our day who are capable of tackling every single halachic question uh, that arises for us. And that itself uh, is a comfort that our halachic system outlasts every single reality. Our halachic system is continuously valid and continuously applicable in a way that never leaves us alone, never leaves us unmoored, but always has what to say. And to me, that anchor of having that halachic system that can address every reality um, is itself very empowering. Frank. Thank you. The truth is, is as that was that was beautiful and that was extraordinarily clear. And uh, this is something I've been experiencing as well, where there are so many topics where we would never go into them and we would never take the time to work them out and and to, to take them apart and really understand them well, because they're not so relevant. And then all of a sudden they became super relevant. You know, as an example, when we discussed earlier this year, what to do when you come back to shul after missing all those weeks of Kriya Satira. So there was more Torah written on that than there's been, then there's been written in hundreds of years. Uh, it exploded, you know, the topic. So there was many topics that got an extra special treatment and we, you know, we didn't even know that it was, there was, it was written in Shulchan Aruch and then we found out that it was. So that's, that, that also has been a, uh, a tremendous source of learning for me, <laughs> if nothing else, just to learn and to understand and to broaden my knowledge. Thank you. I want to talk about something that all shuls have been uh, trying to figure out over the course of the of Sukkot was how to do uh, the hakafas of Hashanah when you you know circle the bima holding your lulav and esrig and we say Hashanah and uh, tomorrow on uh, Hashanah Rabbah we're meant to do it seven times 
uh, how to do that uh, socially distanced because, you know, even on a regular year, many shuls with a huge amount of members struggle to figure out a way everybody can go and they have these whole intricate mazes that people go in and they go out and they go around just to make it fit and to make it work. And now when we all have to social distance, what options do we have? And every shul has adopted their own particular solution. Some shuls have just the shleach tzibur, the chazan, he walks around and he represents the whole tzibur. And then others, they go outside of the shul and they circle the whole shul. Uh, that's another way of doing it. And, and, and by us, what we've opted to do is we divided it up into different groups. So different groups of five people, they circle the bima quickly, uh, as we're saying the haishanah. So uh, let's say group number one with five people circle the bima. They just say the first two or three and then the next group circles and then they say the next two or three and by the time everything is completed, everybody has gotten a chance. And turns out it even works out a little smoother than it did in other years. You know, maybe we're onto something here. But when, when researching this, I, I want, was curious if there's any analogy or any precedent, uh, as Rabbi Weinberg was saying, you know, in history where they had to face such an issue that they couldn't have everybody do Ashanis and what do they do? So, uh, uh, a halachic precedent, interestingly, is a taz. There's a, we all know and we've seen when in shul that mourners avail them within the first 12 months or 30 days, depending, they, uh, they don't do the haishanas. They don't circle the bima, uh, holding the little venestrig. And, and, and the poskim are very perplexed. Why? Why not? What, what's, what's special? This is not dancing on Simcha's terror, right? This is doing a mitzvah. It's on Yantiv. Why would they not be able to do this mitzvah? And different reasons are offered. The Taz says a fascinating thing. He says the same way we don't allow an Avel, a mourner, to be the Shleich Tzibur. We don't allow him to, to lead the services from the Amu to be the, the Chazin w- during Yantiv. A mourner, it's just not appropriate. He should lead. He should represent us during a happy time. So he says, when we're doing the circuit, when we're circling the bima, there are many people who can't. Why not? Uh, so presumably because they don't have a lulav and asterisk. So there are many people who can't do it. And he says, whoever is circling is representing them. They're the shluchim of those people who can't go around. So the mourner, if he were to go around, he would be serving as a shliach for those who, who uh, can't go around. He's their proxy. And it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate that someone in mourning should be serving in that capacity. And therefore, he should sit by his seat. That's what the Taz, the Turizav, on the side of Shulchan Aruch writes. Uh, and that's a, a precedent that there is such a concept of having someone do it for you when you can't do it. So that would be a good precedent to have, in this case, you know, because of necessity, only one or two people circle the bima on behalf of everybody else. So that would be a precedent you can do that. But the fascinating thing is that when I was researching the topic, it turns out there is a historical, uh, there is a historical base to, uh, to learn from, I guess, where they had this problem. They had a problem that they couldn't have everybody do it, but the problem wasn't a pandemic. They needed social distancing, but for a very different reason. Uh, the reason they needed was because apparently the custom was in Europe and this in, in Germany, but this was a long, long time ago, like the end of the 1600s, beginning of the 17s. The custom was that in order to go around the bima, you had to be honored to go around. You didn't just step up there and go around. So they would, first the Rav would go around, then the Chazin would go around, then if there were other Rabbanim in the, in the Kehillah, they would go around, then the board of directors would go around, and then it depended on your status. If you were a bigger Talmud Chacham, if you were older, if you were more venerable, more respectable, uh, and everybody was expected to honor the person who was more deserving to go first. Uh, as you can imagine, 
that didn't end that well. So it led to much uh, arguments, debates, and fights. So, so much so that many people even stopped doing it totally because they just didn't feel it was just beneath their honor to go and then have someone cut them and go ahead of them who was clearly less, lesser than them. So they just wouldn't go, they would stand by their seat. And the El Yoraba, who's a uh, Pirush, is a very, you know, one of our big sources in Halacha, he wrote a Pirush on the Lavush. He lived in the beginning of the 1700s. His Sefer was published in 1757, I believe. Uh, he writes that it's, it's terrible what's going on. They stand there with their little van esrig and they don't circle because of the issue of Miba Reish, who goes first. He compares them to Yerabam ben Nevat, the first king of Yisrael, who uh, famously, the Gemara says, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him, do tshuva, and you and I, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kebayachal, and David HaMelech, we will walk around in Gan Eden. And Yerabam ben Nevat said, wait a second, who goes first, me or David HaMelech? And Hashem Yisbarach said, David HaMelech goes first. And Yeram ben says, then I'm out. He goes first, I'm not going. And he says, that's what be, these people are like. They're not going because they're honoring other people. So this was a problem, and many people were stopping to do the mitzvah. So there was this uh, group of rabbis. It was called the Consistory of Westphalia. And uh, this was established in uh, 1806 or 1807 uh, by a, a wealthy and influential Jew. His name was Yisrael Jakobsen. And uh, Westphalia is an area near, near Germany. And the, the time is that Napoleon was ruling and Napoleon wanted to emancipate the Jews and he had them form a Sanhedrin in uh, Paris. And his, his uh, brother, Jerome, was the king of Westphalia. And he wanted to institute a very similar thing. So they formed this consistory of Westphalia. It was like a group of rabbis that uh, issued different sakim, like a Sanhedrin. And they were, were you know, trying to change customs in order to keep up with the times. And they met with a lot of opposition, as one would imagine. One of the most famous things they did is they tried to abolish Kitneus on Pesach. And many of the, the, the great rabbis of the time that we're familiar with, the Chassam Seifer, the Tshuva Me'ahava, Talmud of the Noide Behuda, they all wrote scathing um, Tshuvas to, to disagree and to argue and so on and so forth. But fascinatingly enough, one of their decrees that they tried to institute was that only the rabbi, the chazen, and they write the oiskim b'tzarchei tzibur, those who take care of the tzibur's needs, the, the kehillah's needs. I, I'm guessing that's a euphemism for the board of directors. So just the rabbi, the chazen, and the board of director, directors should do hashanas. They should represent everybody, and everybody else should stay seated so that they don't fight, they don't stab each other with their lulavim. This is apparently what was going on. They shouldn't shove each other, and, and they will represent everybody else. And they, they made an argument that in the Beis HaMikdash, which is what we're trying to emulate, that they used to uh, circle the Mizbeach, they say, who circled the Mizbeach? The Kahanim circled them. Not everybody circled the Mizbeach, only the Kahanim, which actually happens to be a debate in the, in, in the Rishayim and in, in, in the Gemara. It's not so clear, but they assumed that only the Kahanim. So why do we have to have everybody do it, just have some people do it? No. Now, as we know, that wasn't accepted and that didn't catch on, but nevertheless, it's a historic precedent where they were faced with a similar kind of issue, and that was their solution, to have only some people do it and represent everybody else. Now, I don't know if we want to build from them, but the concept, as we already saw on the Taz, is a valid concept. So that being the case, any one of the solutions that have been suggested seems to have a valid basis in halacha. Thanks. Thank you, Rabbi Frank. I'm going to give you the next question as well. Would you please share with us some divrei 
hashkafa or thoughts for us to reflect on on this day of Hoshana Rabba, which has just begun this evening. Thank you. So as we mentioned, our custom is that we circle the bima on a, at least on a regular year. We all circle the bima on Hoshana Rabba, holding our lulav and esrik. And on Hoshana Rabba, we circle it seven times, and then we put down the lulav and esrik. And we pick up the Hoshana's bundle, the five Aravas that are bound together, and we pick that up. And then we finish the, the program, so to speak, with holding that. We say the tefillah, and then we bang it on the ground five times. Now, at C, it's interesting to note that it's not so clear. When exactly should you be picking up that bundle of Aravas? The Ramah in one place says you should actually be circling with it on Hoshana Rabbah. You should be holding it together with your Lulav and Esrik. But then in another place later on in Tafresh Samach Dalid, he writes, no, 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 actually, first finish with the Lulav and Esrik, don't hold the Hoshanas, don't hold the Aravis, and then pick up the Aravis. And the Mishnabrura on that location quotes the Arizal, the Mikubalim, the people who knew the secrets of the Torah, and they say, definitely, don't touch the Aravis, do not pick up those Hoshanas until you're finished making the full circuit all the six days, the seventh day, you circle seven times, put down the Lulav and Esrik, and only then can you touch the Hashanahs and pick them up, the Aravas, the bundle of five Aravas, and pick it up. Now, why is that? And uh, what, does, what does this mean? So clearly, this is a Kabbalistic concept, uh, which we'll try to understand a little bit, at least as far as we can understand, uh, which might be very far from the actual depth, but a little bit, see what we can get from it. So they explain, as, as is quoted in Svarim, that when we're circling the bima, holding our lulav and esrig, we're bringing down tremendous chesed, mercy, kindness from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, because what are we doing? We're doing mitzvahs joyously. That's essentially what we're doing. We're holding on to the lulav and esrig. We're trying to do more mitzvahs with it. They, our, 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 our chachamim, our gemara, our, our, our rabbis, they instituted more ways of doing a mitzvah with the lulav and esrig, and this is one of them. So we circle the, the, the bima saying and davening, and it represents how much in love with this mitzvah we are, how much we are in love with our Torah, how much we're trying to do our best to do anything we can to serve our Kaddish Baruch Hu. And that brings down tremendous divine mercy, chesed, rachamim. When we pick up the arava, they say, it's a whole different ballpark. Then you're bringing, you're being ma'orer, you're awakening the, a different midah, a different aspect of HaKadosh Baruch Hu of Hashem, and that's the midah of gvura, of strength, of the awesomeness, which is usually associated with din, with judgment. And they say, first, make sure you've got all the chesed you can, all the rachamim, you've done every single circuit possible, put down the lulav, and only then can you start even thinking about picking up the arabs. That's what they explain. Now let's try to understand that. And I'll say that I was inspired to this idea largely by a talk I heard last night uh, by Rabbi Fischl Schachter. He's a rav in, and a well-known inspirational speaker in, in I believe, Flatbush. Uh, and he sa- spoke about this last year, but it's a little chilling how relevant it is for us this year in particular. We know that the four species, the four minim, the dal minim of the lulav, esrig, the hadasim, and the aravas, they represent the different factions in, in Klal Yisrael. The esrig is the talmidah chachamim, the tzaddikim, the highest level in, in, Ju- in Judaism, they're the heart of Klal Yisrael. And then the, the hadasim and the lulav, 
they represent people who excel at mitzvahs, people excel at Torah. And then the Arabis, they represent the lowest element of Klal Yisrael, the people who don't really have Torah to fall back on, they don't really have mitzvahs to fall back on, but they identify themselves as Jews and they're proud of their, of their heritage as Jews and they're a part of Klal Yisrael as well, a very important part. Well, and we bring them all together. Now, it's important to realize that the judgment of Hashem that began in Rosh Hashanah and continues through the Aseris Yimei Yom Kippur and all throughout now, it judges all of us and we, we're a little bit of everything. We're tzaddikim in some sense. We've done certain things we're proud of, certain things that were very good. We excelled at certain mitzvahs and we undoubtedly are deserving of reward for those mitzvahs on high. But then we've done some other things that perhaps uh, we're not so, uh, not all that proud of. And, and uh, maybe they're devoid of holiness, as the Arava is no tam and no, no reach, it doesn't have a smell, it doesn't have a taste, or maybe even we're not so proud of them. So everybody has a little bit of one of these four minim in them. We're a little bit of an esterig, a little bit of a lula, a little bit of adas, and a little bit of Aravas. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu passed judgment on Yom Kippur, hopefully we did tshuva, but you know, maybe we did, maybe we didn't. So we get another chance. On Sukkot, you know what our chance is? We can undo all our sins retroactively through tshuva me'ava, through demonstrating how much we love Hashem, how much we want to come close to Him, how much we love His mitzvahs. So we run into the sukkah, we're embraced by the sukkah, we hold our lulu v'nesri again. Throughout the whole yantiv of sukkahs, we hold everything together because what we're demonstrating is we want to bask in the presence of the holy people. We want to learn like them, learn from them. We want to become like them. And more than, more than that, we want to learn from the good side of ourselves. We want to emulate our better self. We want to become like our personal esrig, where we've been good, where we do well, what we're successful at. That's what kind of life we want to lead. We want all the rest of our deeds to resemble that as well. And that's what we demonstrate by holding everything together throughout the whole Yantav of Sukkot. And that brings down tremendous kindness and mercy from Hashem. So we try that all the way till we get the end of Ashana Rabbah, which is the last stand. And that's when the final judgment is going to happen. Now, we tried what we can, and we hope it worked. But if it didn't, we make a last-ditch effort. Our last-ditch effort is we put aside the lulav and the asterisk. We're done with that. And then we pick up the Hashanahs. We pick up these five willow branches, the five Aravas. And we tell HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you know, now we're all alone. We don't have the support of other, everybody else. We're standing here in front of you alone. And we know that perhaps you want to punish us for what we did. Maybe we, we don't know what you have in store for us. But we accept it. We accept it upon ourselves. And we take those Ashanas and we give them a whack and a whack and a whack. And five times we whack them. And what we're saying is, that's what we are as Jews. You can whack us. And throughout our lives, everybody gets that whack. And I think this year, we've all got whacked. And we got whacked once, and then there seems to be a second wave, another whack. And I hope we don't get whacked five times. And certainly not, all our, our leaves should not all fall off. But a Jew, he gets whacked, and he gets whacked. And then he stands in front of Hashem, and he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't cast blame. He doesn't demand justice. Instead, he says, God, Ana Hashem Hashiyana. You're the only one. You're righteous. 
you did this to me, I accept it. And I know that you're the one I have to turn to if I want to be safe. And that's what we demonstrate. That's our last ditch effort with that Arava. We tell HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we are ready to accept whatever you send our way. We'll accept it and we'll accept it with happiness. We'll accept it with serenity. We'll accept it with faith. We trust in you. And we say, Kol mevaser, mevaser which is the deepest and most deep-rooted faith and emotion that every Jew has, that all suffering, the suffering we had this year, the suffering that all Jews have endured throughout this Gullus, it will come to an end. And then we'll know that it was all for a good reason. It was all for a purpose. And we'll even be happier and better people for it. And that's how a Jew really serves God at his highest level. So you take that Aishana, you whack it on the floor, and we demonstrate that, Kaddish Baruch you can whack us, and we're still going to be true to you. We're still going to be faithful to you. And that's the biggest, greatest zuchus, merit, that any Jew can have. And then what do we do with that Arava? You take it, and many places have the custom, and this is a custom which is logged, and it's, it's, it's a valid custom, to throw it on top of the Aron Kaddish. And it's a halakhically questionable custom because it's somewhat of, of, of a bizarre and it's, it's, not, it's not, you know, honoring the Aron HaKadosh, our holiest part of our shul, and you're throwing things on top of it. And strangely, although it's, it's discussed, but no one really explains what the reason for this minig is. So it's kind of no man's land. It's, you know, it's, we can all say what we want. So I'll give a suggestion, which, uh, again, I was inspired by Rabbi Fischl Schachter, that he said, you know, if we do this, if we withstand this test, that we've all been tested this year, everybody's been tested with this test, not to get angry, not to get frustrated, not to give in to anger, not to give in to, 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 to use, to loss, to depression, to despondency. We say, no, we're going to continue on as Jews with faith, with trust in you, God. Then you know what happens? That broken up, five sticks without any leaves. In Yiddish, it's called a tzaklapta haishana, right? The broken, that, that whatever, the limp uh, willow leaf gets thrown up to the highest place, the most holiest place possible that we have in our shul, the top of the Aron because that's what happens. It propels you all the way to the top. You gain, gain the, the highest level of Kedusha, the greatest level possible. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu accept all our tefillahs, all our bakashas, everything that we've been davening for, may he redeem us from our current difficulty. May we become out of it better people, grow, grow, grow greater spiritually, and may he bring us the final redemption when we can actually hear, Koyal Mavasar Mavasar Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Frank. So back to you, Rabbi Weinberg. Would you now please share with us some Divrei Hashkafah? or thoughts for us to reflect on on the upcoming days of Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. Sure, I'd uh, be happy to. Thank you, Rabbi Frank. That's uh, very inspiring. I hope to jump along with the Aravos up to, <laughs> up to the heights. And, uh, Ritz Hashem, we should all just uh, rise to those levels. Also, Rabbi Frank, just uh, haven't had a chance for a rejoinder yet for a beautiful uh, second uh, Shiloh, which you shared about the the circling, but um, I'll tell you, if we ever get the schuss to daven together on, uh, on Sukkot, I'll let you go first. For the, for the... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no problem. Um, 
there's a well-known uh, midrashim in various places which connect each of the shalosh regalim to the three avos. So Pesach is tied to Avram Avinu, and Shavuos is tied to Yitzchak, and Sukkot is tied to Yaakov. We understand that these aren't just cute linguistic connections, but what these midrashim are conveying is that each of the avos and imahos, each of the figures of our past, have so much bracha to shower upon us, so much to pass down to us in terms of their influence, in terms of, uh, of the heritage that we come from. And that influence is conveyed to us at strategic points throughout the year where it can be more felt and more relevant and perhaps more perceptible uh, than in other moments. And those moments for the three avos happen to be Pesach, Shavuos, and Sokes. And we're elevated by the brachos that are conveyed to us through those the special and auspicious moments. Like we say in the Tehillah, God, we should all be elevated by the bracha of the moed that we are experiencing right now. The question as we enter tomorrow night, Mirza Hashem, Shmini Atzeres, is which figure of Jewish history, which of the Avos or Imahos, is tied to Shmini Atzeres? Why do Pesach, Shavuos, and Sokas each get their own figure in these Midrashim, and somehow Shmini Atzeres is left out? The Gemara tells us that even though Shmini Atzeres is technically really connected to Sukkot, it's the eighth of the seven days of Sukkot. It's, it's like an appendage to Sukkot. Nevertheless, the Gemara tells us it's its own independent holiday. In fact, the Gemara outlines six ways as a whole mnemonic, Pazer, Kashav, six different ways how uh, Shmini Atzeres is its own independent Chag, its own independent Yontif. So if it's its own independent Yontif, it should get its own figure, which it's connected to. Whose bracha do we soak up as we enter the day of Shemini Atzeres, for us in Galus, in, in exile, in diaspora, Shemini Atzeres and, and Simchas Torah. Whose bracha do we absorb most strongly on that day? The Sfas Emma says that the bracha that we get on Shemini Atzeres is the bracha of Moshe Rabbeinu. And it should be fairly obvious to most of us that the, there is some connection between Moshe Rabbeinu and Shemini Atzeres Simchas Torah, at least in the way that we celebrate it today. After all, we read Bracha, the conclusion of the Torah, the death of Moshe Rabbeinu, the idea of passing on bracha to us through his brachos in Bracha. So there is some connection to Moshe Rabbeinu. And so the Sfas Emes is not altogether surprising. There are other suggestions which we can come to another time. But the Moshe Rabbeinu connection is a very strong one. Moshe is connected to Shemini Atzeres. Something is conveyed to us on this day of Shemini Atzeres through the history, the character, the traits of Moshe Rabbeinu. It's a lovely idea, but it leaves me wanting a little bit more. What specific trait of bracha is conveyed to us by Moshe Rabbeinu that we could connect to on this upcoming Chag? The Sfasemis points to a powerful medrash, which speaks to the very nature of Moshe Rabbeinu's bracha and to the trait that I think we can all benefit from reflecting upon uh, during this chag. The medrash says that if you think about all the brachos that were conveyed by Avram, by Yitzchak, by Yaakov, and then by Moshe Rabbeinu, there is one common denominator. There is one thread that runs all through these brachos. And that is, says the Medrash Rabbah, Shelo haya echad maschil ela mimakom shepasak chavim. Everyone in this chain of blessings from Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, every single one of them began where the previous one left off. Beautiful image. And the Medrash actually traces 
how, how that's true in the brachos. For example, Avram berech es Yitzchak minayin dechsi vayitin Avram es kolashelo li Yitzchak. The bracha that Avram gives to Yitzchak begins with the word vayitin. Therefore, says the Medrash, Amad Yitzchak levarech es Yaakov, Amari malkum shepasak Abba misham anamaschil. He says, when he gets up, Yitzchak gets up to then bless Yaakov, he starts where? His father left off. He uses that word again, and it continues to trace it all the way through to the fact that Yaakov's bracha ends with the word vizos, and Moshe Rabbeinu, the final one in this whole line, begins his brachos, which we're going to read, vizos habracha, with that same word vizos, teaching us that none of the avos in this chain of blessing began on their own. They all started where the previous person left off. Moshe Rabbeinu's bracha is the climax, the epitome of this concept of continuity, which started already with Abraham Avinu and goes all the way down the line. Moshe's bracha vizosa bracha, which is conveyed to us on the day of Shemini Atzeres, is something that implants within us the importance and the notion of continuity. But the medrash that I just read is conveying something very important about the nature of continuity. If you were paying attention to the Medrash, which I just read and cited, each one of the Avos was simultaneously accepting the fact and understanding the fact and tapping into the fact that they were part of something old and something ancient. And they didn't need to reinvent the wheel. They didn't need to start from scratch. They didn't need to feel alone or isolated like, it's my turn. I'm going to start something new right now. No, they were each part of something ancient and old that came before them, and they were happy to tap into a, to that. They were happy to take part in that. They were happy to grab hold of where the previous person left off and start off from the very same place. And yet, at the very same time, simultaneously, they each were willing to add something new to that chain. They started from where the previous generation had left off, but they brought to the table their own talents, their own personality, their own charisma and energy, their own thoughts, their own wishes and desires for their children, for the Jewish people, all coming to a head in Moshe Rabbeinu. He takes the best, the best of what came before him and then says, now I have more to add to that. I have more to convey. On Shmini Yatzeres Simchas Torah, this Yantif, which Mirza Hashem, we're going to enter tomorrow night, we celebrate so much. We celebrate especially the culmination of the Torah. And there is no more important message as we celebrate the culmination of Torah than the message of continuity, exactly in the way it's conveyed in this Medrash and by the Svasanas. Our continuity in Torah is critical. As we celebrate the culmination of Torah, and hopefully the beginning of Torah, once again, as we read Bereshis, we all have to recognize the rich and beautiful and strengthening and powerful heritage that came before us. That none of us starts from scratch. That none of us begins in a vacuum from nowhere. We all come from something beautiful, something astounding that came before us. And at the very same time, every one of us has perhaps an obligation and an ability to add our own stamp and bring our own selves and our own personality to the table, into the study of Torah and the practice of Torah. That's something that our Kaddish Baruch Hu craves and wants and desires from us. We have to recognize as we celebrate this Yom Tov, the power of where we came from and the power of what we can contribute to gain our own Chalik in Torah.
to gain our own place in the world of our heritage, the world of Jewish history, our own place that will be the stepping stone for those who come after us to grab hold of that and continue along the chain. This principle, echad Thank you, Rabbi Weinberg. Uh, now for our last question of the evening. Um, we have all experienced so many different emotions over the last seven months of COVID-19. We've had highs and lows and everything in between. We have all had certain moments when despite the chaos of this time, or maybe because of the chaos, chaos of this time, we had the ability to see things more clearly than ever. Rabbi Weinberg first, and then Rabbi Frank, please share a memorable or touching moment that was eye-opening for you during this time of COVID-19. Thank you, Larry. That's, uh, that's a tall order. There are so, so many moments, and uh, I know the time is getting late, and I, I don't want to take too much time. So many moments, uh, lots of highs, lots of lows. It's hard to narrow to, uh, to one. Uh, certainly many religiously high moments, coming back to shul for the first time, Amen Yehishmei Rabbah the first time, um, many amazing family moments, many communal moments, seeing people and the way they band together and uh, continuing to do that and to uh, strengthen each other and help each other. Um, many different moments come to mind, but I guess I'll share just one, um, which was quite emotional for me, that hit me very hard, but something that will last uh, with me for a very, very long time, and hopefully not just in a negative way, but a positive way as well. And that is the memory, as I've uh, told some of you, of the day we closed the shul, a very difficult day, on that Friday, Erev Shabbos, Parshas Kisisa, just a couple of days after Purim. Um, of course, went back and forth and back and forth for so many days, discussions, Larry and I, as Larry knows very well, and the board and our task force and everybody involved as to whether it was safe to continue minyanim, to continue our activities in the shul. Reports were coming from other places in the country where things were heating up and things were getting worse. Here, constantly changing realities and new information were coming our way. And uh, that Thursday night and Friday uh, was in consultation with, uh, with my postgame all night, day, and continuously on the phone. And um, I remember very clearly that afternoon, that Friday afternoon, um, I called Rav Willig with some new information that we had and uh, more of the facts after having spoken to him the night before already. And I remember exactly where I was standing and, and as he said to me, you have to close the shul. And I kind of knew that was what he was going to say. It didn't really shock me in that moment, actually. It sounds very dramatic now, but it didn't shock me. Uh, based on our previous conversations and what I knew, I recognized that that might be where this is going. And I think in my naivete, I thought in my mind, okay, shutting the shul, and okay, a couple of weeks, a week, two weeks, three weeks, this will pass, and you know, okay, we'll come back. So it's horrible, it's awful, but in the scheme of things, okay, it's what we need to do. And in some ways, I recognize now that Hashem was shielding me and all of us, I think, from, from the true reality and the tough decision that was ahead of us, because, um, you know, I don't know if we could have made the decision knowing the the great um, outcomes of that decision, the ripple effect of that decision, how long it would last and, and how it would affect us. In many ways, I think Hashem was shielding us from that. But he said that and I said, okay. But then something else happened in the conversation, um, which is that he started to cry. And I never had that experience with him 
before, although I'm sure he's a very emotional person, but in asking him many, many, many Shilas over the years, I, I never had that experience hearing him cry. Or Schechter, I also ask many Shilas too, uh, cries a lot. He's a very emotional person. I've seen many times, I've never seen that. And as he started crying, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, what all this meant. And I started crying and it was tears. It was tears of sadness, like Echa, like how, how could this be? How could we be shutting a shul? It was tears of shock, you know, never anticipated in my entire rabbinic career would ever have to do such a thing. It was tears also of commiseration, hearing him cry and me cry and we're in this together. And all those tears just felt so overwhelming to me that we both just said good Chavez and, and hung up the phone. And that moment is something that will live with me forever, something I will never, ever forget. The, the drama of that moment, the weightiness of that moment, but the feeling like we're in this together and that ultimately these are decisions we have to make for the betterment of the world, betterment of ourselves, for the betterment of our communities. Um, that idea came through so clearly in those tears that this is hard, but necessary. This is horrible, but absolutely right, is something that was very important to me that has, has carried me through this time. I don't know if I could have been carried this far with the many difficulties that have come and the many challenges, forget personally, but just communally, had I not felt the duality in that moment of tears. And I know it's something that I will actually cherish. It's hard to say that because it's a hard moment. It was a difficult moment, but it's something I really will cherish uh, for a long time to come. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, please go ahead, Rabbi Frank. Thank you, thank you, Rabbi Weinberg. Um, I'll agree with you. Uh, this wasn't the best year to be in a leadership position. <laughs> it was, it was uh, uh, and I'm sure every rabbi and every board member uh, will agree to that. And it's so, as you said, it was one thing after the next of one hard decision after another. And, and it was very trying. It was very trying. And uh, I totally, totally relate <laughs> to that, that being a very, like a turning point. I could see it, totally see that. Um, I, I wanna share, uh, as I imagine many of you know, or if you don't, that I, I did get sick early on, uh, right, right before Pesach, and I was in the ICU for, for two weeks. Uh, so I wanna share two thoughts, one when I was in the ICU and then one out. But uh, when, I, when I was there, you know, so I, I was really very, very, very sick and there wasn't much I could do and it was hard to, it was difficult to breathe and I was in oxygen. And, and you, at that point, nobody knew anything. It was panic as far as COVID was concerned. They didn't know any treatment. They had no idea what works and what doesn't work. They didn't know what was right and what was wrong. And it was very clear. Everybody was just guessing. And basically, they didn't really have what to do. Uh, all they did was watch. So you had that real, real understanding and feeling that you are in, totally in God's hands and nothing else. Uh, so I was there, I was there for a while, and every two or three days we get a different nurse. And I remember just as I was about to be discharged from the ICU and sent up to uh, a regular uh, hospital bed, my nurse at that time is a man, his name was Vincent. Uh, Vincent came over to me and he says, you know, I just realized uh, that uh, you're a rabbi. Should ha I have been calling you Rabbi Michael all this time? And I told him, Vincent, 
in the ICU, there are no honorifics. <laughs> you just realize you're a human being and you're happy if you can be a human being and you can, you know, have some of the basic tend to yourself and, and the way we're all used to and we take for granted, but we don't realize that we have to be thankful for. And I think to a large extent, what COVID has brought to our attention, if you have gotten sick or Baruch Hashem, you have not gotten sick, but you, we've been limited and we've been, re, we've been brought to our attention starkly that we're not in control and we can't control a lot of the things that we thought we pretty much had that, you know, Pat, we saw that we don't, and it's just not up to us. And that brought us a sense of humility. It humbled us. And that humility, as we were just talking about, the Haishanas, that broken up Haishana, is so, so important. As Dako Shval Ruach Eshkain, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, His presence, His divine presence, only rests on people who are humble. They're Shval Ruach, they recognize their, human, their humanity, and they know who, know who they are and what they can do. And if we can walk away from COVID, keeping a little bit of that humility, then we've brought HaKadosh Baruch Hu into our homes to such a tremendous degree. And that was just something that was just brought to my, so it was such clarity at the time. I, I wish it could stay with me. But at the time, it was with such clarity that it's not about being a rabbi. It's not, it's, it's, recognizing who we really are and who's really in control. Another thing, another point, a uh, fascinating part of the whole coronas, coronavirus ordeal, and I'm sure you all experienced this, was the plethora of memes, uh, funny videos, emails, jokes, etc. cetera. Uh, people were churning them out like full steam. And uh, you know, if you have, everybody has at least one contact on their WhatsApp that, uh, considers it a God-given task to, you know, spread them all around. So you get it once. If you have two, you get it twice. If you have three, you get it three times and so on. So I collect, I started collecting them and going through them. And I, I suggest everybody does this. Go through, go back to March if you still have them and go through them and you'll be fascinated by what you'll see. Uh, it really shows us what we were thinking. And as Rabbi Weinberg said, maybe Hashem was shielding us or we were just in denial but how, how far from reality we were at the time. And then as reality began to sink in, you know, how we started to try to deal with it and, and, and to, you know, to take it together. And, uh, you know, uh, there, everybody was kind of like, take, so everybody dealt with it differently. There were the Esrig and the Lulav and the Hadas and the Aravis, the four Minim. There were four different kinds of people. There were people that flourished. They blossomed in COVID. They took advantage of all the Shurim and they were listening around the clock. They were saying to Hillam and Davening for sick people. They were volunteering for all kinds of kindnesses. And it was really beautiful. They should be blessed. They're the Tzadikim of Klai Yisrael. And then there were other people that were very happy if they could keep it together. <laughs> and they could just go on and keep on doing what they're doing. And, and, and that was amazing. And then there are people that were just happy they didn't lose it totally and fall apart. And that was also beautiful. And it's all different parts of Klai Yisrael, which are so necessary. And, you know, there are, there are different terms that were coined. So there was, uh, the one I loved the most was Corona-illusional. <laughs> when, you know, in the beginning of Corona, you thought, oh, I have all this time now. It's locked down. I'll do this. I'll do that. And I'll accomplish this. And then what ended up happening was you were not sure if it's Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. You just had no idea where the time went. And then there were the people, you know, like I said, that were so happy that they felt that they were, they, they deserved at the end of any good day a, uh, 
quarantini <laughs> from their ISO bar, right? So they deserve the, the, a special drink from their isolation bar and, and as, as a reward, which undoubtedly they did, we do, and we all do. But I think the truth is, and allow me to share this, uh, one of the memes that I really love, uh, some of us definitely had a little bit of this. I had tested and I'm negative. <laughs> you know, there, it, was, it was rough. It was rough and we're still, we're still having our patients tested. Now, one thing though I realized, and this was so important to me, was that there were so many things that a year ago, if you would ask us, are you thankful for them? We wouldn't even realize that we're taking them for granted. That's how unthankful we were for them. Like, yes, are you thankful you can send your kids to school today? Like, yeah, well, why not? Uh, are you thankful you can come to shul whenever you want? You don't have to register. You don't have to be a member to walk into a shul. You can sit wherever you want. You don't have to have PPE just to be able to walk through the door. You can sit without fear. You can breathe normally without something covering half your face. We, none of these things even occur to us that we need to be thankful for them. And if we look back and we start seeing how things de, you know, de deteriorated and disintegrated, we start realizing how many things that now we're thankful we start to get them back, or at least we think we're getting them back. We do need to be thankful now. And there was one meme that I, I think said it all, and I'll share that with you as well. It's a school bus, mom. Stop referring to it as the answer to my prayers. <laughs> and I think that that's really what it needs to be. We need to realize that if we have a school, if we have a school bus, it's the answer. It's because God answered our prayers. And we, start to, we need to start being thankful for it. So the two, two powerful emotions that I've been buffeted by again and again and again throughout is a, the recognition of we have to really start recognizing our humility and taking it to heart, being humble and recognizing our lack of control, we're humans and God is in control. And secondly, how much blessing, chesed, that God has been showering upon us all this time and we just didn't, re didn't know to, to thank for it. We didn't even realize how thankful we need to be. And we now, are so much greater because of that. And we have so much more of the ability to truly be makirtav and to thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for all that. Um, I think with your permission, I'll just uh, close with a, few, with, a, with a few words. I want to thank um, Mrs. Elisheva Kohn for coming up with this, the, the brainchild of this idea it was such a wonderful and beautiful, inspiring event. And I want to thank uh, Rabbi Weinberg for pushing it through and making it happen and speaking so wonderfully and beautifully. And I have had the pleasure to work together with Rabbi Weinberg. And it's every time we get together, we just wish we had more time together. <laughs> and it really, it's really, it's really wonderful and, and it's inspiring. And it's so beautiful as a community that you know it was demonstrated in so many ways throughout COVID and as always, we really come together, we really work together, we really try to help each other. And may HaKadosh Baruch Hu have that schus, which is so special for the Antiv of Sukkis, where all the different minim, the all different types, the Lul of the Esri, the Hadas, and the Aravas, they all come together and represent what Chal Yisrael is, what Judaism is, we're one unit, we're Aguda Achas, we're one bundle, and that's the way we want to serve God, that's the way Hashem wants us to serve Him, and may He take away this distancing, this solitude, 
this difficulty that he is make, he's challenging us to come together despite all the physical barriers in place. May we go back to the normal and be thankful for it so that we can serve a Kaddish Baruch Hu all together in total unity. And may we merit the final redemption when we can truly be unified in Eretz Yisrael with Mashiach Tzidkenu. From here, Amen. Amen. And a good night. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful and a great ending. Hopefully the beginning of many more things to come. Amen. Thank you everyone for participating. Larry, great job as the uh, MC. Thank you so much as well. And uh, I guess wish everybody a good Yanta. Yanta. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good Yantif. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Good to see you. Rabbi, this was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, everybody. We need someone to put together a whole book of all those memes and everything. <laughs> Definitely. <need> a reminder. <laughs> and a laugh. Yeah. Rabbi Frank, in your spare time. Yeah, right. We have so much of these days, right? <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward. <laughs> Rabbi Weinberg? Yes. You mentioned that uh, someone asked you about eating in the sukkah, Simchas Torah, if it's Mosif and all that. Yes. The irony is this, the weather forecast is for rain Sunday. <laughs> yeah, right. And I laugh to myself because you don't have to sit in the sukkah. We had a beautiful week. That's right. Otherwise and otherwise. Maybe it's a Simon Minashamayim Bertha. Thank you. It looks that way. Yeah, very, very well pointed out. Thank you, everyone. Chag Sameach, Moadim Lusimcha. Be well. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Take care.